You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Amen. And you may be seated. Hey, church, happy new year to you. It is, hey, there we go. It is so good to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. Hey, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, and today we're starting uh, a two-part series. Today's part one. Next week is part two called Two Lost Sons, and that is more famously known as the prodigal son, as I'm sure you have heard. And this uh, story is probably one of the most popular teachings or parables of Jesus. There's been more songs written about this. There's been more paintings made, books written, movies made along these themes, and it's for good reason, right? Like this parable is near and dear to our hearts. And the reason it's so powerful is because we see so clearly the love and grace of the Father, right? This is such a meaningful passage, but anytime something is also super familiar, there's a tendency that we might have to be like, I've heard this one, I'm good. And we don't want that this morning. We wanna press in, we wanna have eyes wide open to see what the Lord has for us this morning. And so we're actually starting with the younger son this week. And just to jog our memories, the younger son goes to his dad and he says, hey, I want my share of the inheritance right now. Um, And then he goes off into the land, the foreign land, and he spends all of this money, all of his inheritance, living recklessly, wildly, partying, gambling, doing all the things you shouldn't do. And then he comes to the end of himself and he comes home to his father. Now listen, this is the day after New Year's Eve and y'all chose to be in church Okay, so what's not lost on me is we might not have a ton of younger sons in the room. Maybe we do, but we might have some older sons. We'll get to you next week. But here's what I also know to be true is that until the Lord returns, we are perpetually in a state of wandering from and returning to the Father. Like we believe in progressive sanctification that day after day we will look more and more like Jesus, but this pattern is true nonetheless, that our hearts are indeed prone to wander And so this cycle of wandering from and returning to the Lord is so present. And so what that means is that there is something here for us today that the Lord wants to speak to us, that it's good for us to remember, why is my heart so prone to leave? We need to remember the moment where the Lord gave us spiritual clarity, where he opened our eyes and we saw our desperate state, our sinful reality. We need to remember the goodness of the Father that welcomes us home. These are important things for us to remember. And then we're also going to get into something that I believe uh, is a great hindrance to many believers today, and it's keeping us from just embracing our identities and having deeper intimacy with the Father, and we're going to get there if you hang with me. Um, But before we jump into the text, just a word of context. So we're in Luke chapter 15, and this parable is the third of three parables on lostness. So in order to understand why, why is Jesus using these parables, we need to read just the first three verses of 15, and you don't need to turn there. It says this. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, surprise, surprise, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. Okay, so the scribes and the Pharisees are doing what they do best. They are playing the greatest hits. They are complaining about Jesus. And specifically, they're complaining about Jesus because he's sitting with sinners. He's fraternizing with sinners. And what they believed is that Jesus was guilty of impurity, that he was violating the law because to eat with sinners was to signify acceptance. 
You see, they didn't understand the heart of Jesus, and they certainly didn't understand the purpose of the kingdom. See, uh, the, the, the sinners, the lost people were not an inconvenience to Jesus. They were the purpose of why he came. And so Jesus um, answers them. Actually, in Luke 5, they came at him earlier about this, and Jesus responds to them. He says, hey, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call the sinners to repentance. And so Jesus takes a different approach in Luke 15, and he goes into a series of three parables on lostness. We have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost sons. It's been a while since we've been in parables, so just to jog our memories, parables are an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and they're used to reveal the message of the kingdom to some while concealing it to others. So in this moment, Jesus was revealing to these group of people again why he was here. He was here to save lost people. Jesus came for lost people. And so you have the tax collectors and sinners, and you have the Pharisees and the scribes, both totally lost. And in our story, you have the younger son, and you have the older son, both totally lost. So one of the purposes of this parable in particular is to show us that being lost can look a few different ways. And so today we are going to be looking at the younger brother, and next week Pastor Earl is going to be examining the older brother, and that leads us to point number one, which is this, the rebellion. I am prone to wander. I am prone to wander. All right, let's read verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Okay, so we have a man and he has two sons. And it would have been Jewish customs that these sons would have inherited uh, the estate of his father once the father had passed away. That would have been normal behavior. It was also Jewish custom that the eldest son would have received a double portion to the rest of the children. So in this particular situation, the eldest son would have received two-thirds and the younger son would have received one-third. So all of that would have been normal. It wouldn't have been weird that the son had an expectation, an entitlement, if you will, to his father's estate. But what is unusual and actually unthinkable is that the younger son would come to the father and demand that he gives him his share now. Like, I want us to understand the gravity of the offense. Like, this would have been the equivalent of the younger son going to the dad and saying, hey, I wish you were dead. I am tired of living under your house, under your rules. To be honest, it's getting a little inconvenient waiting for you to die. So if you could just give me my share now, that would be great. It was like he was signing his father's death certificate. Like, this was an unbelievable offense, and the father would have had every right to drag his entitled punk of a son out and boot him out of the family with nothing. Like, that would have been an appropriate response to this request. But what's even more unimaginable than the son's request is the father's response. You see, the father's response is that he divided his property between them. The English loses some of the beauty of uh, this text and, and the word property in particular. So in the English word, we have property. That's actually two different Greek words. And when the, the, the youngest son says, I want my share of the property, he's using the word usia. And that word would have meant capital, assets, money, substance, stuff. The son wanted stuff. And then when it says that he divided up his property, the father, that's a different word. That means bios, and that means that the father tore his life apart. 
You see, the son wanted a check, but the father takes it a step further and he tears his life apart for the sake of the son and indulges his son's request to give him what he was asking for. And if we could put ourselves in the hearer's uh, seat for a second, they would have thought that this is just unbelievably foolish of the father. Like, this is not the way it should have gone. Let's keep reading verse 13. So not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So not many days later, a.k.a. as soon as he could, he got out of there. Like, he couldn't wait to leave the house. He traveled to a far-off country. The son had dreams of grandeur and adventure. He was longing to go into a foreign land where he could do whatever he wanted, where he could be whoever he wanted to be. He wanted to get out. He wanted to experiment. He wanted to break free of the laws of home. Like, just imagine, what was his heart like when he was at home with the father? When he was doing his chores with his brother, I just imagine just the poison in his heart, the bitterness, the resentment that would have been building as he's doing his chores. Just like, I just can't wait to get out of here. I can't stand my father. I can't stand his rules. And one day I am getting out. And I'm going to go into a distant land where I can do whatever I want, where I can believe whatever I want to believe, where I don't have to be at church every Sunday. Like he wanted out. And so he takes all that his father gives him and he goes off because he was being lured in by the lies of the land. See, the far off country was making a promise, so to speak. And so I thought, what are the lies of the land? What would have been wooing his heart away from the father's house? And I came up with a few. Number one is this, freedom. It goes something like this. Hey, you're not really free unless you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. That's true freedom. And you don't have that at dad's house, so come into the far-off country where you can have freedom. That's line number one. Line number two is this, fulfillment. So this goes something like, the purpose of your life is to be happy. And so we want you to come into the far-off country where you can indulge every desire in your heart, no matter what it is, no matter what makes you happy. This is how you are truly fulfilled. So come to the far-off country and find your fulfillment. That's line number two. Line number three, friendship. The people at home don't really understand you. Come into the far-off country where we, as your friends, will affirm you to death. We don't care who you want to be. We don't care what you want to do. We are here for the ride, and we will affirm you no matter what your behavior looks like. We are your friends. We'll help you spend your money. That's line number three. Line number four, fun. It certainly isn't a lot of fun working at home with dad, is it? Well, come into the far-off country where you can experience what true fun is, where you can gamble, where you can experiment, where you can do the things that you want to do. That's, that's fun. Come. These are the lies of the land. And listen, I don't know exactly, the text doesn't say exactly what lured him away, but I believe these are the lies of the land today, isn't it? And the reason is is because the human heart hasn't actually changed all that much. And for many of us, we are being lured away by the lies of the land. And listen, the son gets exactly what he wants. And that can be like such a dangerous place to be when we get everything that we want, isn't it? So the son goes away and he starts blowing all of his money. 
in his Las Vegas lifestyle. And so listen, this is a heart of rebellion. This is an obvious, morally bankrupt situation. This is obviously a heart of rebellion. And for some of you, this feels really familiar to your story. Maybe it's you right now. And maybe this is some of your story before Jesus stepped in and saved you from it. But what I want us to understand is that all of our hearts are able to get there. Like we are all two or three steps away from disaster. And so lest we get a little holier than thou this morning, looking down at our younger son here, I want us to understand this is possible for us. Warren Wearsby very helpfully said this about this passage. He says, the far country is not necessarily a distant place to which we must travel. Listen, because the far country exists, first of all, in our hearts. The far country exists, first of all, in our hearts. That's very helpful. You see, the far country had the son's heart long before he got there. And the far country has some of our hearts already this morning. In fact, some of us spend like a lot of time and energy and money pursuing these things. We love money. We love status. We love power. We love indulging our lust. We love self-gratification, self-expression, self-indulgence, self-desire, self, 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 self. This is what the pursuits of the far country is. And for many of us, this is the state of our hearts right now. And so what I'm asking for us right now is to evaluate where are our hearts this morning. I'll take it a step further. We now have these little devices that are like portals into the foreign land, right? Like we can just a few clicks away and we are there indulging any desire that we want. Where are our hearts this morning? You see, the son wanted the father's goods rather than the father himself. Does that describe us at all today? I don't care if we've been following Jesus for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I just want us to get this. Like, we are all prone to wander. So where are you this morning? Wearsby also says this. He says, the dissatisfied heart leads to a disappointed life. And so now we're going to see that on full display. Point two is this, the realization, I am in need of help. Verse 14, let's read. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, that's interesting, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Okay, so notice this. This isn't a coincidence, This isn't like some bad luck. This happened because he is reaping what he sowed. This is a result of his sin. Scripture says when you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. Another way to say it is these things aren't happening to him. These things are happening because of him. You see, he finds himself, I love this, it's so interesting. He goes from being a tourist in the far off country to hiring himself out to being a citizen there. In other words, he went from touring the country to being a slave in it. That's a word for some of us right now. Some of us think that we're just touring the far-off country. We're just looking at properties. We're just going around. But really, if we had some honesty, we'd look down and realize, I can't leave. 
I am stuck. I am enslaved in this thing. I'm stuck in a pattern of sin. Because this is what happens. Sin overpromises and underdelivers every single time. Like, think about it. Think about the lies of the land, right? Think about, we just looked at this. So freedom, that's number one. Well, our boy's now bound. He's hired himself out to a citizen working for food. He isn't very free in this moment, is he? Okay, what about fulfillment? It says that he began to be in need. Like he's eating pigs. I would imagine that this doesn't fit exactly what he had in mind. He doesn't seem very fulfilled. Okay, what about friends? It says that no one gave him anything. Where are your friends at, bro? They helped you spend your money, but they are nowhere to be seen in your time of need. And lastly, I don't know about you, but eating pig food isn't very fun. This is what sin does. It overpromises and it underdelivers every single time. And it would be such a point of spiritual maturity if we could understand this and like put it to work in our lives. That in our day-to-day lives, right, we're like, we'd see something, we'd see the lie coming, and we'd be like, I know that that's not real. I see what sin is promising, and I'm smart enough to know, I've seen in Scripture, that it is going to underdeliver on me, and I'm going to be in a pretty bad state quickly. That is what sin does, and so this is a point of massive spiritual maturity. If we can understand, sin overpromises and underdelivers every single time. And so our guy, he comes to the end of himself to the point where he's, he's starving. He's, he's looking at the food of the pigs, and he's dirty, helpless, and in need. And it is precisely in his lowest moment that he has the greatest spiritual clarity and perspective. Let's keep reading verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay, so in this moment, he not only understands his foolishness, but he understands the severity of his sin. He isn't saying, hey, dad, I messed up a little bit. I, I, I made some bad decisions and, and got unlucky. He's saying, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. And so one of the evidences of a changed life is that we can look at our situation and see it the way that God sees it. I think sometimes we might be getting a little cute with our language when we're talking about our sin. Like, we didn't just slip up. We didn't just make a mistake We've sinned against a holy God and against one another. Or worse, we're not going to psychologize our sin and say, oh, it's just, that's my Enneagram number. That's just who I am, you know? Like, no, like, this is a sin and it's offended a holy God. And so, one of the evidences of a changed life is we're looking at it and we're seeing this is how God sees my helpless estate right now. R.C. Sproul on this, he says this, very helpful. He says, Here we have the essence of conversion, that moment in a human being's life when they come to themselves and they realize that they have sinned. Not that they have made a mistake or been guilty of an error in judgment, but that they have sinned. I love this next part. In true repentance, contrition breaks through. 
the illusions are shattered, the games are over, and the man said, I will go and tell the truth. I love that. The illusions are shattered, the games are over, I will go and tell the truth. This is what conversion looks like. You see, repentance begins with a proper recognition of our sin. Like only then can the Lord actually step in and do something. When we're holding on to our broken pieces saying, no, 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 I got it, I got it. He can't use that. He cannot do anything with that. But when we acknowledge that we are broken and helpless, he can step and say, I can do something with that. I can rebuild what is broken within you. I can make it new. He can do something with a broken heart. So the son comes and he's broken. He comes to the end of himself and he says, I need to go home. I need to go home. See, the son realizes that he's not worthy to be called a son, and he's right. Like, he, he wrote his dad a death certificate, took his money, spent it in a foreign land, and burned every bridge he had. He's not worthy to be called a son. But what he knows is that it is far better to be a servant at home than to be a beggar in a foreign land. And so he's come to the end of himself. He sees that this must be true. He stands up, and he starts to rehearse this speech. Like, I can just imagine him, right? Just picture this. He's like, he's a mess. He's in the mud. He's with the pigs. He's starving. He's probably skinny and dirty, and he's broken. And he stands up, and he's like, I, I, I know I need to go home. So maybe he picks up whatever few things he has. And then he puts one foot in front of the other, and he starts just rehearsing this speech under his breath, just, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, I know I'm not worthy to be called your son, and if you just take me in, as like, he's just rehearsing this as he's walking home, and maybe why he's doing that, maybe he's starting to drown out some of the voices that would have been ringing in his head, you know, those accusatory voices, like, are you sure you want to go back? Think about all the bridges you burned, think about the people, how are they going to receive you? Is your father even going to welcome you back? He's going to have to face his brother, his friends, what are they going to say? Hey, what happened to your grand plan? You just went and wasted all of dad's money and you have the audacity to come home. What are you thinking? I, I just have to imagine those voices are ringing loud in his head, but he's rehearsing his speech because he is so convinced that I need to go home. And some of us right now, we're stuck in this place. We are stuck in our sin. We have come to the end of ourselves, but we just don't know if we can be honest. We don't know if we can go home and face the Father. We don't know if we can turn to others around us and just be honest about our sin. In fact, the one that tempted you is standing over you and he's accusing you. How could you do that? If you find yourself in this place this morning and you don't know what to do, I just encourage you, just hang with me. Let's keep reading. It gets real, real good. And that leads us to point three. The return. I am welcome home. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put him on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. In fact, bring the fattened calf and kill it. We're having steak tonight. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. There is so much I love about this section. 
The first thing is this. I just have to imagine that in all of the son's journey home, all of the, the situations that he imagined, I just don't think he would have seen this coming. You see, the father wasn't angry. He wasn't cold. He wasn't indifferent to the son's leaving. The father's heart was shattered when his son left. Someone said that the father or the son left the father's house, but he never left the father's heart. And that's so true, right? So the father, just imagine, he's out working in the fields, doing what he does, and just every few minutes, he just looks up over the hill that his son wandered over. And he's just wondering, like, is today the day where my son's coming home? Maybe he's pacing back and forth on his porch with tears in his eyes, longing, pleading, watching, waiting, praying. Is today the day that my son is coming home? His heart is in this. And then that day does happen, and he glances over the hills, and he sees this skinny, dirty figure that kind of resembles his son. And what does he do? That man takes off running. And like, we know, we know this. We know that Jewish patriarchal figures did not run. It was undignified to run. But listen, the father couldn't care less. He sets aside his dignity, his formalities, his office, and he runs unashamed to the son. It says that while he was a long way off, you see, the father was waiting and watching. He couldn't wait for the day for his son to return. And he was ready for it so much so that he ran to him. The son didn't have an opportunity to go home and clean himself up to take a shower before he met his father. The father ran to him. And then he kissed him and he hugged him. And the son, what does he do? He launches into this speech that he's been practicing, right? He's like, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I know I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the, the father doesn't even let him finish. The father interjects and says, hey, get a robe for my boy. Bring a ring for him. Get some shoes on his feet. You see, this is my son. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. You are my son. And he calls for the best robe in the house. Who do you think had the best robe in the house? Dad did. And you see, the son, that deserves shame and dishonor. He receives the royal robes of his father. He is met with dignity and honor. Tim Keller very helpfully says it this way. He says, the best robe in the house would have been the father's own robe. This is an unmistakable sign of restored standing in the family. The father is saying, I'm not going to wait until you've paid off your debt. I'm not going to wait until you've duly groveled. You are not going to earn your way back into the family. Hear this. I am going to simply take you back. I will cover your nakedness, your poverty, your rags with the robes of my office and honor. Just to make it even more clear, this is what our Heavenly Father has done for you and for me. He's covered our nakedness. He has covered our poverty. He has covered our filthy rags when we deserve nothing but judgment and rejection, and he has placed his royal robes on our shoulders. This is the heart of the Father to you. So listen, this morning, if you, if you are in a far-off country, if you find yourself 
lost and at the end of your rope, and you like, I just don't know how I'm going to be met. Like, hear this today. That is how you will be met by your heavenly Father. There will be no accusations. There will be no place for I told you so or how could you. There is just an eternal embrace from the arms of your heavenly Father who says, my child, welcome home. I've been waiting for you. And listen, some of us, I think, like, I think we still wrestle with the economics of this relationship. I think some of us are so hung up on this line that I am not worthy to be called your son, and it's keeping us from embracing our identity in the family. Like, here's the deal. You were, I was, never worthy to be called a son because that's not how it works. A commentator put it this way, he says, we are not a son by worth, but by birth. What do I mean by that? Listen, you can't earn your way into a family that you were born into. So I think at some level, we understand as Christians that we were saved without merit, but like we're pretty convinced that it's merit that keeps us in the relationship. And so what do we do? We wander off from the Lord and we find ourselves in a pretty helpless situation. And then all of a sudden this magical scoreboard appears and we feel like we need to put some pluses on the board before we can go home and face dad. That's not how it works. It is not merit that keeps you in this relationship. It is his grace and his mercy and his love. So we need to stop keeping score. You are not a child by worth. You are a child by birth. And listen, like, that doesn't mean our, our holiness and our obedience don't matter. But what it does mean is that we work from our identity in the family, not for our identity in the family. I'll say that again. We do not work from, or we work from our identity in the family, not for it. We do not need to earn our way back in. God chose you before the foundations of the world to be adopted as one of his children, and it had absolutely nothing to do with what we brought to the table. Because all we were bringing was a sack of sin. That is our contribution in this. In fact, he knew that, and he knew that our sin would separate us from him, and so out of that love, he sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross in our place, taking our punishment. And so what happens is when we were dead in our sin and blinded to our helpless situation, he opened our eyes, and he allowed us to see, hey, I'm not in a good spot. And then he granted us faith that we could turn and we could repent and place our faith and trust in Jesus. And then we are born again into the family. And then in that moment, we receive the righteous royal robes of Jesus Christ. He takes our shame. He takes our dishonor. We receive dignity and honor from Jesus Christ. We receive his righteousness. We are welcomed home. We have peace with the Father because of what Jesus has done. I'll take it a step further. There's going to be a banquet table. There's going to be a meal. He's going to throw a party for his children. And we're going to sit around the table, and all that we're going to be doing is celebrating his goodness, his mercy, his redemptive work on our behalf. This is the gospel, friends. We are not children by worth. We are children by birth. This is crucial that we understand this. R.C. Sproul, again, so helpfully, he says this. He says, no one will ever get into the Father's house by pleading their own worthiness. Only those who acknowledge their unworthiness will get there. 
So what do we do about this? There's at least two groups of people in here, and there are at least two different responses that we can have from this text. The first is for those of you who are truly spiritually lost. You have no saving faith in Jesus Christ, and if you were to die today, you would spend eternity away from the Father and never have the opportunity to come home. And you're sitting here right now and you're like, I found myself here on New Year's Day and I know that my situation is pretty bad. But I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to come home. And what I say to you is just, it's pretty simple. We've already said this. What your response here today is to look at the goodness and love of the Father and you need to get up and you need to repent of your sin. You need to leave the foreign land that you're currently in. And you need to place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross that he was crucified, died and buried and rose again on the third day. And you say, I believe that that's true. And if you do that, you will receive all of the benefits of the family. You're going to get a robe. You're going to get a ring. You're going to get some shoes. And then you're welcomed into the family finally and forever. That is the response. And I am calling you today. I am pleading with you. Please come home. Do not wait That's the first group. The second group, you're in the family. You know this, you've been saved, you've placed your faith in Jesus, you may have been walking with him for a while, but you've wandered off from the fold of God. And you're stuck in this unhealthy, unhelpful pattern of trying to earn your way back in. And you're trying to put some positives on the the scoreboard so that you can come and face the Father. And so my message to you today is also come home. But you don't come home by cleaning yourself up. You don't come home by doing a bunch of good things so you can face dad. You just come. You remember his goodness and his mercy and his grace that meets us again and again and again and again. And then you come home and both of you, both parties will be met with love and grace. In fact, the father is standing today with arms wide open, and he's looking over the hill, waiting for his children to return to him today. So please come home. We had the the lies of the land earlier, and so uh, we're going to respond. We're going to have a song. It's a new song sung over us, but there's a verse in there that I just thought, uh, this is like the promise of the Father's house. It's not a lie. Like this, This is our reality for children of God, and it says this. It says, Come find what this world cannot offer. Come and find your joy here complete. Taste the living water and never thirst again. Rest here in this wondrous peace. This is the promise of what the Father's house is like. And so for you, if you find yourself and you know you've wandered, today is the day to return. Today is the day to come home. And so I plead with you, we're going to have the, the worship team sing this over us, and they're going to stand and you're going to sing with them. I, just, I pray that the Holy Spirit just does a work in your heart and he reveals something to you. And if you are far off, come near, come home today. Amen. Let me pray for us. We're so thankful for your word today, Father. We're thankful for glimpses of your goodness and your mercy Forgive us of the times where we feel like we need to earn our way back into the family. When you've told us that's just simply not how it works. I pray that we would find ourselves just listening to the 
to the promptings of the Holy Spirit this morning. As the word has gone out, there is something here for us. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you convict where appropriate? Would you woo to yourself where appropriate? We love you so much. We are so thankful that we are met with mercy and grace and kindness and love this morning in the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.